With the news media reporting increasingly more data breaches and cybersecurity events, and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. We're here to help you prevent potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the 95th episode of my show. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. Also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website, and then you'll be notified just as soon as each new show is available. And I want to thank all my listeners throughout the world I sincerely do appreciate you, and I thank you for listening and sending all your messages. I love getting them. I sincerely hope you are all doing well and staying healthy, and I really do hope that 2022 is a much healthier year for our planet in every way possible. My January Privacy Professor Tips message was published on December 30th. It includes content about International Data Privacy Day that's taking place on January 28th. Please sign up for these free monthly tips messages. I've been providing them for free since 2005, and I've been doing it in an effort to increase general awareness of data and cybersecurity and privacy issues and to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to send to their employees, such as on January 28th, right, for Data Privacy Day. And, of course, at all other times as well. Sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. And we are now also providing free ebooks, flipbooks, and awareness videos through our privacysecuritybrainiacs.com site. Get them from there and sign up for notifications about those again from privacysecuritybrainiacs.com. Hey, we've published our second paperback book in the series titled Cybersecurity for Grandparents and Everyone Else. It's the Q4 2021 edition, IoT Security and Privacy, and it's available from Amazon worldwide. It contains expanded information from our volumes four, five, and six flipbooks. We also moved the publication to January. We did this so we could include information about the Log4j vulnerability that I'm sure many, many of you have heard about. And in it, we provide advice to IoT consumers about how to protect their IoT products from related attacks. 
And also within it, we've provided a lot more tips, a lot more checklists and many examples, many places to take notes throughout the book, a glossary and so much more. We created it to help all of those with IoT devices, smart homes and smart everything else. And for those who will be giving and receiving smart devices and smart products as gifts, go to Amazon, do a search for cybersecurity for grandparents or search for Rebecca Harold, and you'll see it listed with many of our other books. Think about getting and giving that book as part of your data privacy day activities. Speaking of log for Jay. We are covering that on the show today, along with the larger problem that may have led to it, that of what appears to be not following some of the important wide range of secure coding practices. So summarized with extreme simplicity, the Log4j security vulnerability is ultimately a result of insufficient secure coding and or testing practices for software. And it's used in billions, with a B, of devices worldwide. And it's now being actively exploited. And it's causing a wide variety of security incidents and privacy breaches. It seems like new attacks are announced weekly and here in the past few days, sometimes daily, and it, that are exploiting that vulnerability. So how did such a dangerous vulnerability make its way into billions of devices? Well, I have the perfect person to speak with today about this. And I'm so happy to welcome back to my show today, my longtime friend, and also one of the most brilliant computing and information security experts in the world, Dr. Mish Kabay, to discuss with us Log4j and secure coding practices. So first, a little bit about Mish. Dr. Kabay was the program director of and created the Master of Science in Information Assurance at Norwich University. And that's where I also had the honor and great privilege of working as one of his adjunct professors in the program for nine and a half years. Dr. Kabay has published more than 1,300 articles on computer operations and security and has served as a professional technical editor since 1970. Mish was technical editor of the fourth, fifth, and sixth editions of Computer Security Handbook from Wiley. Dr. Kabay has lectured on information security at NATO headquarters, NATO Cointel, U.S. Army War College, and the Pentagon. Dr. Kabay has taught internationally in the U.K., Germany, Japan, China, and Canada. Dr. Kabay has been a member of the Information Systems Security Association Hall of Fame since 2004, and I'm really excited to announce that Mish is going to be a master expert instructor for our new Privacy and Security Brainiacs Master Expert Online Classes. And uh, on top of all of this, Mish is 
fluent in French and also speaks German. See more about Dr. Kabe in my bio about him on my Voice America show site page and about today's episode. Mish, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Well, well Rebecca, Rebecca, you did, did, didn't tell me that my head was going to explode from <laughs> swelling up after that introduction. My goodness. Well, you've done a lot. You've been doing things your entire life. And I'm so happy that I have you. You, you explain things so well. I mean, you're one of the first folks uh, that I went to a conference session about uh, security way back when I was starting in my career. So I know you explain things so well. And I think it's a good time to level set for my very wide range of listeners as um they include high school and college students, but also all the way up through practitioners with decades of experience. And I'm so happy that I have folks just in the general public who want to learn more about security and privacy because they're concerned about those topics too. So let's start with this. Can you let our listeners know what exactly is Log4j beyond just the, the, the simplistic summary I gave at the beginning? Sure. You have to understand that Log4j is a vulnerability in one of the most widely used interpreters, and I'll explain that in a moment, in uh, history. It's called Java. And Java is used in literally billions of systems around the world. It's a given everybody uses Java as a normal part of programming for web based computer programming. It's also used even in some application programs, even if they don't use the World Wide Web. Java is an interpreter. There are two ways of executing instructions, uh, major ways of executing instructions in computing. One of them is called the compiler. The other is called the interpreter. A compiler reads a set of instructions called source code and it generates static code that is stored as basically machine language sometimes known as assembler if you look at it that way but it's executable by the computer processor an interpreter is a program that accepts input and judges what it means or what it's for, mm -hmm. and then branches to coded sections for execution in real time. So an interpreter is very much like what the word means in plain English language. You know, the, the interpreter listens to what somebody is saying in English and translates it actively into whatever language they are interpreting for, like French or German or Russian and so on. So Java accepts inputs usually on a web-based system. By far the majority of uses of Java, Java, not the hut, Java, <laughs> uh, uh, the majority are indeed on web pages. Now here's the problem. When we give an interpreter 
text that is something we type in or send with a browser, the, the interpreter takes that string, stores it in a region of memory called a stack, which is a working area for programs, and it then applies its programmed logic, whatever the programmer wrote, into the Java code to decide what to do with it. So for example, a page could say, please enter your user ID. And somebody types, you know, mekaday at gmail.com and so on. And that input is scanned by the Java interpreter which says, oh, I see, I know what that is. That's the, that's the ID. I'm going to check a database. Yep, there it is. This is a valid user. So now I'm going to activate the code dynamically that says, please input your password. And again, you know, you would enter your password and it would read it, scan it, and it literally interprets the code. Here's the problem. There are ways in which a poorly designed piece of Java code, which apparently is widespread around the world right now, badly designed Java can accept input that is supposed to be, let's say, a user ID. Mm -hmm. But if the input includes special characters like forward slash marks and keywords, the interpreter may very well interpret that as a command. Mm. This is not cool because it means if the programmers who wrote the Java code did not check the nature of the input to the program, to the interpreter, they may be, the program may be fooled quote unquote, into executing code. And that code could say things like, I want you to list all of the user IDs and passwords for me <laughs> and send them to 143.28.64.159 or 158. And that would be the address of a server receiving 28,000 user IDs and passwords. It's appalling. Now, some of the fundamental problems that occur that allow such an error mm -hmm. include not checking for special characters that are inappropriate in the input field. That's one. Mm -hmm. That would block commands, period. I mean, you would have uh, the interpreter code would say, are there any forward slashes, angle brackets, and so on and so forth in this input and if the answer were yes it would say invalid input but if it doesn't have the check then it's possible for the input and now we go into a little more technical detail i, I don't want to go too far mm -hmm. typically the input is stored in the stack there are many ways that putting data in the stack from a from an input can go wrong one of them is even if there are no special commands at the beginning, if the programmer hasn't checked the length of the allowable input, like say, I don't allow more than 20 characters for the user ID or something like that. Mm -hmm. I'm just making that up, but it's an example. Then a, 
a malicious actor, a hacker, could could introduce not only a name, but a bunch of instructions after the mm. name. And if that overflows, that's called a bounds violation, or sometimes called a stack overflow, although that has ambiguous meaning, but the data gets stored in the stack in places that mean, oh, execute this. Mm. These are these are principles that we've long established for controlling input to interpreters. Check the length, check the nature of the characters, block specific strings that may be dangerous, mm -hmm. like the introduction to code. So I hope that gives our listeners a sense of the problem. Now, there is another aspect to it that you correctly raised. Not only should we be using secure design methods, like saying, oh, we're not going to allow command instructions to go into a field that's supposed to be a name. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, we have long established principles in software quality assurance, generally called SQA, so SQA. Um, we have long established principles for testing. Mm -hmm. And the testing includes rules that say always text, test below, at, and above numerical limits. So if, for example, that's just one example. So for, for instance, if the data that are being input should never be below 20 and never above 180, you would test at 19. 20, 21, 119, 120, and 121. Thus, you would test not only within the normal range, but mm -hmm. at the limit, below the limits, and above the limits. This is standard operating procedure for SQA. Standard. And I know. I want to interrupt you just really quick because I think that's so important. Because yeah. there's, I've there's so many programmers out there right now. Um, who, when they're testing, they only test to see if it will work for expected input. And if it works for that, yep. then they're like, it works. And it's like, That's ah, wrong, you know, <laughs> I, I want to Wrong approach to wrong test. Approach. One of the principles of quality assurance, and this actually applies to testing anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's software or the documentation of a system, an editorial in a newspaper, whatever it is, you always look for failure. Yeah. In SQA, a fundamental principle that is taught in every SQA course, not, not just mine. I mean, I'm not inventing this stuff. This is standards that are well-established in uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology Special Publication Series 800s, if you look up quality assurance testing in, in the, uh, the govern US government standards, you will find principles. This is, this is known. Always try to make your code fail. Yes. That SQA is for. It is to identify vulnerabilities so they can be patched, that is corrected, before the code goes online, goes into production, or if necessary, you know, uh, if you make a patch, you're supposed to do comprehensive 
retesting of the entire system. Somebody alters 12 lines of code or one line of code in a program. You're supposed to go through, and I'm not joking here, I ran quality assurance in 1979 when I was writing, helping to write a compiler. And I, I had to define the statistical syntax and uh, uh, analyze the syntax to generate the what is called the object code from the compiler. Mm -hmm. I, I had test runs with, I'm not joking, 25,000 lines of input. Mm -hmm. That's no joke. You and try to make it break. Yes, and it's even more important today. I hear too many people who are fairly new or, you know, less than 10 years anyway of experience, oftentimes they're like, well, what what used to work back in the old days, we don't do things like that anymore because we're so much more agile. So um, we don't need to do that. And in fact, Mish, you know, what really drives me crazy too are so many software companies, especially security software companies, that are making changes directly into production. And you even mentioned it earlier about making the changes and testing before it goes into production. That, that you know, applies to changes as well, right? Yes, indeed. Oh. I'd also, if it's all right, I'd like to address yes. the issue of agile development for anyone who's not familiar with that terminology. The the uh, one of the most widely used systems starting literally in the 1940s when computers were built with vacuum tubes and wire uh, uh, circuits. The the most familiar pattern for decades has been called the waterfall approach of the system mm -hmm. development life cycle or SDLC. The waterfall would start with needs analysis, it would go through a phase of, of documentation and you would check that with the users, uh, you know, is this what you want? And then it would go through a design phase and the uh, design team would have meetings and they would say, okay, this is, this is how we will meet the requirements that we have articulated based on our interviews with the users. And then they would go busily write the code and they would test the code and then they would release it. The problem is it would take, again, not exaggerating, it could take years, two, three years from the time you interviewed the users to the time they got the production code. Oh, yeah. And, and there is a principle called the Pareto principle, P-A-R-E-T, as in tango O, Pareto principle that says, in general, 80% of everything is caused by 20% of the causes. In other words, 80% of the, of the functionality of programs can be developed in the first 20% of the development life cycle. So instead of spending two years to get every last piece into the production code using the waterfall, people develop what is called agile and spiral 
methodologies. Agile development strategy, instead of locking yourself in for two years, you start with prototypes, you add some really valuable functions right away, you go back to the users, you say, hey, take a look at this prototype, what do you think? And the users say, oh, that's great, except there's a really important piece that I would really like. And then so you add that and you go back. It's agile. Mm -hmm. It's not rigid. It interacts with the users back and forth. Now, there's another aspect to agile development, which is stepping back for a moment. That's one phase. OK, let's develop version one and use agile methodology. Great. But we don't stop. In the spiral methodology, we release the most important functions that we have found by discussion with the users. We develop the code with agile uh, methodology, and then we go back and say, okay, what's next? And we, we add functionality to the development version, and we test it, and we go to the users and check to see how it's going, again, using agile methodology during that phase. And so version two comes out, and now it's got 60% of everything that was ever asked for. And version three, three months later, will have 85% of everything that was asked for. That's the spiral methodology. Mm -hmm. It depends on integrating interaction with the users to find out if the functional requirements have been met, and it depends on thorough system testing of absolutely everything that used to work, plus everything that has been added before the next version is released. So listeners who are not programmers, I hope you find that encouraging. That's well-established methodology for the system development of any production code. Production code means what is actually being used for the strategic purposes of the users. That's that's production code. That's different from, for example, um, a game, which from the producer's version is production because they're depending on it to make money. Mm -hmm. But very few users depend on the game's functions for their critical mission objectives. You see the difference. For the programmers, yes, the game has to go through the same kind of, of development methodology. But from the user's point of view, it's not production code. You know, so if something doesn't work well, okay, you know, we'll we'll get it fixed. And and nobody's going to die. Do the opposite. Allow errors to creep into a diabetes pump. Yes, I was just going to say medical error. devices and and security systems and you know that's right. And it's happened. And it's happened. I but mean, medical devices have been hacked by psychopaths, sociopaths who have interfered with life, uh, life protecting technology for their bizarre motivations. Oh, They've exactly. Ransomware to shut down production systems in hospitals. Happened here in Vermont. I live in Vermont. Yes. The, uh, the University of Vermont medical system in which my wife works as a neuropsychiatrist was shut down. They had to go to paper. Uh, 
paper. It's so scary. Well, right now it's time for a quick break. But when we come back, I want to pick up there and talk about how um, those vulnerabilities can occur. And then uh, with Log4j, the importance and what people need to know about maybe why such a huge flaw was in that code. But right now it's time for a quick break to hear from our sponsors. I'm speaking today with computing security expert, professor, and author, Dr. Mish Kabay, about Log4j vulnerability and secure coding, which you've heard a lot of great information about so far. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as show topic su- uh, suggestions using my email, Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com, and also through privacysecuritybrainiacs.com. Please stay with us. We will be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, research, report writing, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyguidance.com. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor Monthly Tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyguidance.com for help and answers to your questions. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. I'm speaking today with computing security expert, professor, and author, Dr. Mish Kabay, about Log4j vulnerability and secure coding because they're they're both so closely related. So before we went to the break, why Mish was pointing out a very scary example of how um, vulnerable software um, can put life at risk because of the devices they're in. And, you know, Mish, um, the the Log4j is in so many, like we said at the beginning of the show, billions of devices, and many of these impact people's lives in many different ways. Log4j is open source code So I'm wondering, you know, what would you say, since it's open source, what are maybe some aspects of open source code and some aspects of secure coding that might have prevented the vulnerability? Um, Well, Rebecca, the the problem with um, the uh, Java interpreter is that it really became widely used starting in 2011. Mm. Yeah, and a a new version was produced around 2014. Um, It's not that open source code is inherently bad. On the contrary, in many ways, open source code 
meets one of the most fundamental principles of um, uh, secure coding, which is there should be no secret coding, no uninspected code in a highly secured system. One of the most obvious examples in it is in cryptography, mm. where trying to hide the algorithm is contrary to a very important principle long known since the uh, 19th century called Kirchhoff's principle, which is that the security of a, a cipher, uh, encryption algorithm, should not depend on secrecy of the cipher. It should depend on secrecy of the key. So um, going back to our Java interpreter, I don't think anybody knows, certainly I do not know exactly why it is that a decade-old piece of interpreter code allowed instructions to be inserted. I, I can't answer that question. Well, My I'm wondering, yep. let me just have a quick question here for you. So for our listeners, one thing with open source, it is number one free. It's not software that you purchase it's freely right. available to be used but number two it's typically created by volunteers volunteer right. programmers and a lot of people have said well you know maybe it's because those volunteers either didn't know what they were doing or you know they don't have good enough testing for open source code so what would you say i mean you're talking about the, the openness, it's open for examination, but shouldn't it still be well tested and, you know, the, yeah. the volunteers be kind of, how are they vetted to make sure they know what they're doing? It's interesting that you raise that because I was about to say mm -hmm. that it may be a structural problem. Mm. There may be nobody in charge. There may be nobody insisting on thorough system testing. It may be that the volunteers pick a little section of the code to improve, but nobody is ensuring that system testing meets the standards for production code. That's scary <laughs> for billions of devices. No, and we are seeing the consequence. Yeah. Which we may actually see a movement to change the nature of uh, open source coding. It may be, I can imagine, that in future people are going to say, look, this stuff is really important. We're going to appoint a group of professionals who are named as the system directors, they may be volunteers, but it's their reputations on the line for ensuring that the open source code gets treated the way production code should be treated. And if it fails, well, then their names are in the code as the responsible parties. I just made that up, but it's not a bad idea. No, well, it, it, it establishes accountability, yeah. right? Exactly. And it may encourage attention to detail in coding and in secure uh, software quality assurance. Mm -hmm. So though, that's some, an idea from an organizational standpoint mm -hmm. that might help in the future 
so that we don't end up with millions of, of devices, and by which I mean everything from IoT through servers, uh, that that are incapacitated and are now being attacked. One of the statistics I read in preparing for the show blew me away. Hmm. There are some estimates that there are, if, I hope I've got this right, 100 attacks per hour that are being... just log4j? Yes. Wow. Worldwide. Worldwide. So uh, this is very serious. Yeah. And I think we see some structural changes in the way we handle production code. Hmm. An open source. Yeah. Uh, code. What, what's another thing, too, I think some of my listeners might be wondering about. You know, you mentioned that it's been being used since 2011, I think. Um, yeah. Do you first, think it, that it first been used? Do you think this flaw, this vulnerability could have been there for... 10 years we know it has been so it do you, in I, version one and in version two oh okay it is in version one okay that's oh, interesting yeah. because i've seen a vendor i saw a vendor yesterday put out a a note that said oh don't worry we're using v version one still so we don't have the vulnerability oh, but that's no 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 <laughs> that's wrong that's wrong yeah come on Folks, <laughs> get the stats yeah. straight. Interesting. So, so with open source making folks accountable, that might help to reduce and prevent this type of vulnerability. How about their testing practices? You well, think that's, that's another question: Is what are the testing practices being used by volunteers who mm -hmm. alter code? Um, if if users are not programmers, maybe something. Uh, analogous would would make them see the point. Wikipedia is a volunteer effort in which anybody can alter a an entry in Wikipedia unless it's been locked. Mm -hmm. uh, back when Sarah Palin said that Paul Revere rode uh, on his horse to warn the British that the Americans were coming, which is, of course, the reverse mm -hmm. of what happened. Some of her followers went into Wikipedia and altered the article about Paul Revere to match what their cult leader had said. You can check on this easily yourself. Use Google and, and say, mm -hmm. you know, Wikipedia, Paul Revere altered Sarah Palin. And, and you'll see what happened. Well, the same kind of thing, in a way, can happen in our open source systems, where if nobody is absolutely responsible for ensuring professional standards of quality assurance, who knows what the qualifications of somebody is who makes a change? And other people, maybe on the you know the committee that decides whether it goes into production, say, oh, well, yeah, that looks all right, and, and there's yeah. no not adequate testing. And, you know, I think another important point is that there's some folks who are so good. They're export, experts at a very um, narrowly scoped but very important type of, of security or IT coding or um, software coding um, issue. But 
outside of that scope, they may not be as strong. And that's one of the reasons why I love that you're going to be providing classes in a, the wide breadth of topics as a master expert for our privacy and security uh, Brainiac's new service, because you have been teaching so long and you've done so much work, you're covering such a wide variety of topics. So I'm wondering, you know, what kind of topics are you going to be providing classes for that I people have heard you now speaking and they know that you know a lot about all these different topics. So what kind of classes could they expect to see from you? Sure. Well, I'm not going to be teaching um, anything that I haven't taught before. Um, it's just adapted to the format that, that you are defining in the new program. Um, but in general, um, one of my one of the areas that I think is valuable to professionals and anybody else who's interested, these are not difficult to understand. One of the areas is cyber law mm. and its relation to cyber crime. I think that's really useful for professionals to understand. Uh, mm. I don't want a programmer breaching trademark law because they don't know or mm. writing a program that violates um, uh, HIPAA the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act by revealing medical data without authorizing you know that mm -hmm. that kind of error oughtn't to occur. People who are designing, managing, writing programs should be familiar with the regulatory frameworks. And you and I have talked about this so often. Um, here in the United States, we have HIPAA that I mentioned just now for medical data. We have FERPA for uh, uh, educational information, the Family Educational uh, Rights and Privacy Act. Uh, there's the uh, Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, which covers financial information and, and the like. In Europe, the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulations, are critically important, not only for people writing code in Europe, but anybody whose code is going to be used in, in the European Union, needs to be fully familiar with these laws and principles. What about libel and, uh, and uh, you know, the, the defamation mm -hmm. that we need to make sure that our, our professionals in our companies don't go ahead and violate uh, laws of defamatory by posting defamatory information about individuals or competitors and so on that can lead to lawsuits yes so well cyber law is interesting yeah and related to that i think it's important too because there's so many in it so many programmers who hear about the law but they don't know how they don't yeah. know what that means with regard to building in the security control so for instance there has to be an accounting of disclosures in HIPAA, yes. right? You need to know yes. who has accessed your PHI. Right. Well, who needs to track this? The programmers, oh. right? Of so, course. but the programmers oftentimes aren't, they don't have someone to explain to them what they need to track, how they need to track it, how they need to be, make it accessible. So it sounds like you're saying that some of your classes will talk about, you know, when you're doing software development, here's what you need to do. Yes. To accomplish so. this, and and there's some um, about thirty lectures in that series mm. uh, that 
been, you know, that I will be narrating uh, for for the classes based on the work I've been doing doing for decades. Mm-hmm. Another area is fundamentals of information security, and there are about forty lectures based on the computer security handbook, which I developed for the courses. Volume yeah. one of the computer security handbook, which is about eleven hundred pages, um, is fundamentals of security. Um, things like what are we protecting? What we call the Parkerian hexad, the six fundamental attributes of information that have to be protected. Um, what are secure coding is part of that. Software mm-hmm. quality assurance is part of it. Um, uh, privacy issues can can be part of the fundamentals. Management of information security. Right now, I have 34 lectures on on management issues in security, and they include such issues as working with upper management, uh, human resources, uh, and um, uh, managing the development team. Um, those those are examples of mm-hmm. management issues. How how do you deal? What do you do? How do you manage a computer security incident response team? What yeah. are the principles? that we need to to be aware of what about there's a uh, so that's volume two of the computer security handbook from wiley mm-hmm. uh, that, that deals with management issues there's a course i'd love to teach because it was one of my favorites and one of my students favorites for mm-hmm. many years and it's called the politics of cyberspace it's <laughs> so much fun that's really more i guess awareness uh than anything specific to programming. It has uh, sections on social media, anonymity, uh, the the privacy issues, um, how we deal, robotics, artificial intelligence, virtual mm-hmm. reality, augmented reality. You get the idea. It's just a blast. <laughs> My students said it was the best course they'd ever had. We had but a ball. Know- yeah, and and it's so important. But I bet, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm thinking as you're explaining that, if you're talking to folks who are soft, um, you know, systems engineers and software programmers and so on, you're probably relating those issues to what you would need to do as an engineer or as a, a programmer to well, actually build that in. Is that t- Not in that. That course was open to non-technical students. We had students in in the uh, faculty of arts and uh, people in the who were taking politics, political science, engineering and so on. So it's not I'm afraid that one is I would describe it as more like a fun course that you take just to broaden your mind it's just wonderful imagine watching a video in which i'm not joking in which a female looking robot admits that she would like to destroy humanity (laughs) (laughs) we've got to see that oh we're going to have to because we're getting close to the end here i do want you to mention your new book that you oh, yeah. have, the expert in the next office. And then after that, if you could let our listeners know what you want them to leave with, what message yeah. you want them to leave with today. All right, I'll go very quick. I don't don't have to go through the details. The new textbook is called The Expert in the Next Office, 
Essays on Managing Operations and Security in the Era of Cyberspace. And it is it is uh, being published by Taylor and Francis. Um, and it took me a year <laughs> to collect my essays, rewrite them, add new references and so on. But it should be fun. It starts with an overview, as I mentioned before, of the Parkerian Hexad, the six fundamental elements of security that we have to protect. It goes into a chapter on threats to information security, principles of management, employment practices and principles, operations management for information technology, security policy style, computer security incident response teams, programming for security, which is what we've been talking about, mm -hmm. psychosocial factors in information security, like awareness and training, information warfare, which is going on right now with Russia and China, cyber law issues, just a summary, protecting your organization's reputation in cyberspace, and a very brief chapter on the information assurance profession with guidelines on resources and degrees uh, and programs. Great. Well, it sounds very interesting, and I anticipate probably that the folks taking your classes would also uh, learn more from your book uh, in those classes too. So what is the, the just if you could kind of summarize, we have just one minute here left. Um, what, what do you want our listeners to take away from our discussion today? And I give it point. two pieces in one minute. Okay. Number one, if you are a programmer, if you're involved in information technology, will you please take software quality assurance and secure coding seriously? That's number one. <laughs> okay. Number two, if you are users of computer systems, check to see if there are vulnerabilities that have been published. And there's a wide range of resources for you, even just plain news items from magazines like Network World, Computer World, Secure, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, security magazines. You should be able to tell before you start using a program. Don't download yeah. a program without finding out if it's been rated as secure. Excellent, excellent. I love those, uh, those um, points to make. And thank you so much, Mish, for being on my show today. I really appreciate it. It's always fun. It is fun. So today I've been speaking with computing security expert, Dr. Mish Kamei, about Log4j vulnerability and a lot about secure coding and secure um, IT in general. Dr. Kamei will soon be offering his online classes through our new Privacy and Security Brainiacs Master Expert Education Services. Keep an eye out for our announcement in January of 2022. Please send feedback about this show to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. And also, until our next show, ask those you do business with and work for, hey, are they doing all they can to secure the information that you've entrusted to them? Are they giving you the training you need to do your job securely? Be privacy aware in the month ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live the first Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next time, stay safe. <laughs>